Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. We're all familiar with the expression, food for thought. For my colleague Lisa Helke of the Gustavus Philosophy Department, food is literally the focus of a good deal of her scholarly thinking and writing. Indeed, no one thinks more insightfully and creatively than Lisa about what she calls, quote, the philosophical significance of food. Lisa's interests as a philosopher also encompass questions about more familiar philosophical fare, like knowing, truth, and reality, as well as, to quote her, about the nature of justice, about oppression and resistance, and about human liberation, particularly as they concern racism, sexism, and heterosexism. A graduate of Gustavus, class of 82, Professor Heltke went on to earn her doctorate in philosophy from Northwestern University in 1986 and returned to Gustavus as a faculty member two years later, following a visiting stint at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Highly regarded by students, faculty, administrators, and staff alike at Gustavus for her intellect, wit, and creativity, she has won both the college's Edgar M. Carlson Award for Distinguished Teaching and the Faculty Scholarship Award. A quite prolific scholar, she has authored two books and co-edited three others, along with a steady stream of articles, papers, presentations, and keynote addresses, both in the U.S. and abroad. Her work on food won her the Agriculture, Food, and Human Values Excellence and Scholarship Award in 2017. She wears many hats at Gustavus, in addition to those of teacher and scholar, including, to name just two, as past holder of the Sponberg Chair in Ethics, and currently as director of the college's annual Nobel Conference each fall, for which Gustavus is well known near and far, and about which we'll talk in a bit. A wide-ranging, rigorous, and always interesting thinker, Lisa is also a talented baker, and I just learned a dog sledder. And while I wish we could literally break some of her delicious bread together, I'm delighted we can do so metaphorically on this podcast. So Lisa, welcome. It's great to have you from the wonderful state of Maine. Well, thank you so much, Greg, and uh, congratulations to you on this podcast. I've been listening to it avidly, and I must say it's so much fun to learn about so many of my colleagues uh, through your work. Uh, you know, we once we've known each other for 20 years, we don't necessarily think there's anything left to know, and your podcast is really showing how wrong I was to think that. So thanks for your work. Well, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And that that is one of the joys of doing this for me. I, You know, people I... Well, people like I, I, I think I know well, as you say, and it turns out I don't know a lot about them or people I've had very little to do with. I'm learning a great deal about, um, you know, you might see someone in a, in a faculty meeting and that's about it. So, yeah, it's been great fun. And I know you're doing a podcast as well. And we'll get to that uh, shortly. So I thought we'd begin with a, a, a discussion of the discipline of philosophy. I think for a lot of people mm. that that is a scary word, kind of like physics, maybe, um, philosophy, uh, or, you know, also it's one of these disciplines in the humanities, also history that English easily made fun of as useless, et cetera. But what is it that philosophers do in a, in a, in a nutshell? What does it mean to, to be a philosopher? Well, it's a great question, and you've encapsulated the various ways that philosophy is regarded as a discipline very well. I mean, I never know whether people are going to groan or get all starry-eyed when I say that I'm a philosopher. Um, uh, and what I say um, the discipline of philosophy does is it asks questions that we don't quite yet know how to ask. I mean, I think it asks the questions that are at sort of the fringes of what 
humans are thinking about. What that means is that a lot of times, uh, as those questions get better formulated, they get calved off into being uh, different studies. So, you know, you, you could say that at the beginning of it all, uh, for the Greeks, you know, at the beginning of Western thought, maybe, uh, everything was philosophy. And then we started calving off disciplines like astronomy. And, it, you know, if you fast forward to the 18th century, uh, chemistry and physics, and then we get biology and psychology. And so, uh, sometimes people say we don't really need philosophy anymore because all those things are being done much better than when philosophers were just sort of gazing at their navels. But I actually think we always need philosophy because there are always questions we don't yet quite know how to ask. And philosophers are really good at trying to ask them. Uh, when I talk with students, many of my students are going to take one, maybe two philosophy classes, which I think is a wonderful idea, right? I don't care how much philosophy you take, I just hope you take some. And what I say to them is that what we're really going to focus on in the class is learning how to ask questions well, and to ask them in a way that leaves people thinking, huh, I would never have thought of asking it that way. In fact, students will often laugh in my classes when they will, you know, they will come to the end of their rope and they will ask in sort of a desperate tone of voice, well, what about, I don't know, and, and they'll falteringly ask some, you know, question that they see as really ill-formed and I say, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And they'll say, no, 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 that was a question. Mm. Now you're supposed to answer it. And I say, no, what you have just achieved is what this class is about. It is about the asking of questions. So for me, that's really what philosophy is four. Now, if you ask 10 philosophers, you would get 10 very different answers, which is frankly, one of the frustrating things about the discipline. I never know if I'm doing it at any given time. But at, you know, at my ripe old age, I've decided, well, I've been doing it this long, I'm going to just say that that's one of the things that philosophy is. Oh, and also long windedness. That's another thing. <laughs> we are. That's great. The, 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 the point about questioning, because that's, that's certainly true of history. Um, I have, I have a similar, mm -hmm. similar, um, uh, relationship at times with my students, uh, who's, who want the answer. Um, but no, the questions matter so, so deeply to learning generally. Um, the, um, way you got into philosophy is is i think interesting and would be interesting for listeners to know but maybe first how how why gustavus let's start there you grew up was it rice lake wisconsin where you grew up that's right we, we both that's we, right we, we both have talked about how we have dairy in our background but, but go ahead how did <laughs> yes, you, you find your way to gustavus and then from there to philosophy Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I grew up, I'm the youngest kid in a family where my sisters and my father all went to, you know, parts of the University of Wisconsin system. And I had this audacious idea uh, to, to go to a, a liberal arts college. And my parents didn't really, they didn't really approve and they didn't understand this. And they couldn't imagine where the money was going to come from. And it was in the days when Actually, it was possible to get pretty generous um, scholarship money. So I was, I, I visited a very dear friend who was going to Gustavus and, and fell in love with the place and, and applied and was, was given mountains. It just felt like mountains of money. So that, so that the, the education was really affordable. It ended up at that time being about like what going to the University of Wisconsin would have been. So I felt I felt ridiculously grateful. I mean, I went for the shallowest of reasons, really. I was, you know, I was following a boy, to be <laughs> truthful about the matter. Um, he is still my dear friend, so that that all came out okay, but it was not it was not a lofty 
reason. I was somehow intrigued with the idea of the liberal arts, even though I had no idea what it was. Then I made the brilliant decisions to to wait until the absolute last possible day to register for classes. I went to Gustavus planning to be a music major, which I was, but sort of it ended up being sort of around the edges. I show up on registration day to find that there's nothing, nothing that I needed for a music major open anymore. And instead, I ended up in all these classes that I didn't even know what the words meant. And one of them was philosophy because it was being taught by, they didn't even know who the professor was going to be yet. It was listed in the program or in the the course catalog as staff. (laughs) So I thought, whatever, and drove home with my mother who was, you know, in her perky voice saying, I think you're going to like that. And I rolled my eyes at her and went home to the Carnegie library to the card catalog and looked up the word philosophy. Mm. And of course they're in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Surprisingly, there wasn't much in the card catalog under philosophy, but there was like Will and Ariel Durant's The Story of Civilization or something like that. And I tried desperately to figure out what the hell was this thing. And, you know, a lot of years later, whatever, since 1978, I'm still trying to figure out what in the heck this thing is. So that's my very inglorious story of becoming a philosopher. And then I was just hooked. The first day, the, philo- the professor said, you know, how do you know um, that the external world exists? And I thought, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I was completely hooked. I was also terrified. I mean, I couldn't sleep for the first three months <laughs> of college because I was so afraid. <laughs> well, that's great. That, I just love that story because, um, <laughs> you know, so often – I mean, so often students, sometimes parents, they get so worked up about having to, you know, they think they have to have the major all figured out their first semester. It's just not true. And you're, you're another example no. of that. Far from it. Um, and also the role of, you know, historians, some of us anyway, I'm one of them, love the role of contingency in history. And, um, you know, what if, what if. <laughs> For want of a nail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if you, you know, what if those music courses had been available? You know, who knows? But um, mm-hmm. that's, that's wonderful. How did you. Um, how did you find your way to the philosophy of food or the philosophical significance of food? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was um, that was a different path and a, and frankly a risky path. I mean, if looking back on it now, I think, wow, what a crazy thing. Um, I wrote a dissertation on epistemology, which is uh, a fancy word for the theory of knowledge, um, and I was trying to think of particularly about the question of objectivity. How do we um, know what we know, um, and why are we certain of it? So I, um, in the last chapter of my dissertation, I suggested that what I had offered in this dissertation wasn't a demand or an absolute truth about the nature of objectivity, but rather it was kind of like a recipe book. Um, I was offering my readers some ideas about how things could go, but just like a recipe you need to sort of take them with the proverbial grain of salt and th- and think about them um, for your context. So I um, showed this to a friend, who another philosopher, and they said, you know, this is kind of an interesting idea. You should think about that some more. So, so I did, and I wrote a paper. Um, one of my first published papers was actually a piece called Recipes for Theory Making. I'm forever grateful to the feminist journal Hypatia for being willing to publish this crazy thing in the sort of mid-late 1980s. Uh, and I had the audacity to trot around the country using that as a job talk. When you're, uh, when you're going on the academic job market, you usually spend a couple of days at a potential employer and they, they make you give, give a talk to the, you know, the audience of the professors and students of the department. So I gave this job talk and afterwards to a person, faculty members would come up and say something like, my, that was brave, <laughs> uh, which was 
translated as, my, you are not going to get this job because, you know, in 1987 or whenever this was, people were not thinking about food very seriously in academia and certainly not in philosophy. I mean, we barely knew we had bodies in philosophy in 1987. So the idea of paying attention to them was, you know, completely immaterial. Uh, but I just sort of kept uh, kept going. And then, as you said, I, I spent a couple years at Carleton. And then when I came back to Gustavus, my colleague, Dean Curtin, had independently started thinking about food. Uh, he'd spent a year in Japan and had become a vegetarian. And we started thinking about this together and thought, you know what, we want to get a book out about this right now, really fast before anybody else starts thinking about it. Well, it turned out it was really a five-year project, but it was an anthology in which we tried to say, well, what if philosophers did take food seriously? What would it look like? And we published that book and I'm, I'm happy to report, I think it came out in 1990 or 92, and it is remarkably still in print, which is kind of an accomplishment. And in the interim, philosophy of food has become a, a real thing. I mean, I think there's enough of us that we could fill a small minivan at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and of course, it's um, probably around, I don't know, maybe over the same time span, the the, the history of food and food studies yes. has, has boomed, as you know. Um, a couple of things. One, we should note that you, I, I think you edited Hypatia for a time, right? You went on to be editor of that journal? Uh, I did not. I, w I, I applied for it. I was. I did not get that position, but I did for a while edit the journal Food, Culture, and Society, okay. which was a great experience. And that is indeed one of those interdisciplinary journals that you know I just love because yeah, history is a huge part of that. Anthropology, sociology. Uh, it's primarily a journal of the humanities and social sciences, but food studies is such an incredible discipline because. Uh, food is just a great lens with which to look at human culture from all vantage points. And it quickly leads you to realize categories like history versus philosophy are just too, too narrow and right. tight. I couldn't agree more. And let's, let's use that as a springboard into uh, talking a little bit more about what, what the philosophical significance of food is. And the book is terrific. Mm. The book, yes, it's still in print. I think mm. I still have a copy, probably autographed mm. by you and Dean. Um, but I uh, highly recommend that to listeners. But go ahead. What, so what is the philosophical mm. significance mm -hmm. of food? Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the other ways to, to describe philosophy, I guess, is as the study of questions of meaning and value in human life. And uh, really, what is a more dense um, a repository or, or locus for meaning and value in human life than than food. It plays a role certainly in, well, starting with, you know, just basic nutrition, right? In order to live, we have to nourish bodies. Uh, it, it, it plays a huge role in family life. Uh, it plays a huge role in cultural and religious life and social life. You know, think about all the ways in which under the pandemic conditions, people are feeling just starved literally and emotionally for eating with each other. You know, why are people so eager to get into restaurants? Well, maybe it's because they're terrible cooks, but it's also because there's something about joining others around the table, which is just, I mean, I'm, I'm finding myself just so sad about the, the lack of opportunity to do that. I've started doing something I call drink and driveway here in Maine at my yurt. I have a large gravel driveway. And if I, if I space people well, we can sit you know, at 10 feet apart from each other, and I can fit four other people. And we, you know, mostly people bring their own food and drink, and we just talk to each other while eating. And I don't know what that is. But, but I think the philosophy of food invites us to really take those things seriously. Uh, and then, of course, uh, sociopolitically, uh, food is the locus of, you know, relationships 
at the at the political at the global level. You know, I know one of your colleagues teaches a course regularly on the history of China, in which he explores the ways in which China was able to emerge um, as a population power precisely because it cultivated rice and everything resulted from the capacity to cultivate rice. So it's just, food is just such an important locus of meaning and value that really when you think about it, it's astonishing that there hasn't always been a thing called philosophy of food. Philosophers have always studied food. We just haven't sort of noticed the degree to which it's central. So food and agriculture, I would add. Yeah, it's so, I mean, you're right about it. I mean, when one thinks about it, I mean, how it's such a repository of meaning and value, it almost makes me think we should, it should be a requirement of any any serious curriculum, right? Any serious liberal arts mm-hmm. curriculum, you ought to study right. the, the philosophical significance of, of food. What? Um, right, in that regard, if I could just leap in yeah. there to say, you know, I have occasionally, as we've, called, you know, as you know, you and I have been through a lot of curriculum revisions, and I always sort of, uh, nudge people in the direction of thinking about what would it mean to take seriously the cultivation of the palate, something I know oh, you can yeah. get behind. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we don't think seriously about the fact that every day we we eat. And, and you know, in France, for instance, little children are, are taught um, about how to, how to taste at a very young age. And we really, in the liberal arts, that's one real lack. I mean, other than the geologists who can identify certain rocks on the basis of licking them, mm-hmm. we don't pay any any attention to that cultivation and in fact regarded as sort of a frivolous superfluous feature of human life but oh my goodness it's a source of enormous pleasure and insight and and yeah it is anyway. you know you're 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 making these podcasts often do make me think back on on aspects of my own life and thinking about growing up in the suburbs of chicago my dad was greek american my mother was a you know all american downstate illinois farm girl and uh, food was such an important part. Of, I mean, I still remember going to the farm for a farm lunch. My God, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. <laughs> My uncle came in from whatever he was doing out in the fields and just, you know, an absolute incredible feast. And then with my dad going to uh, Greek town in Chicago, you know, the family. Mm. And what, I mean, it was the food for sure, but it was the smells, it was the conversation, it was the no, all of the above, including the mm-hmm. conversation with my my dad, who didn't attend college, but was, you know, talking about the importance of what we were eating. And, and I wonder in your own case, do you think back to things in your own um, childhood or young teens yes. that, 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 brought you, or, or that you, you draw on as you think about your work around food? Oh, absolutely. And in many ways, um, it's been a kind of, an, an interesting kind of coming out to be a, a philosopher of food. So I went to graduate school, studied with a, a very esteemed philosopher of science uh, named Arthur Fine, uh, for whom I have nothing but the, the most fond um, memories. But Arthur was a philosopher of science and he studied Einstein. And I was with all these people who were philosophers of science. And in the 1980s, when you said you were an epistemologist, people would say things like, oh, what kind of science are you interested in? That is, epistemology had become philosophy of science. And, you know, here I was, this kid from, you know, small town, rural Wisconsin, whose background included, you know, being in 4-H, whose um, I, uh, I I took cooking as a project, right? I loved to cook. My family did indeed 
um, my father's family owned a creamery. You know, my summer jobs were testing butter for its fat content. Mm -hmm. I'm not making that up. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, and that was, I was sort of ashamed of that. I mean, people kind of made fun of the way I talked and they kind of, you know, kind of didn't know what to, to make of me because here I was this, well, you know, hick, frankly. And so for me, coming to the study of food and saying that I wanted to think about knowing through the lens of, of eating and cooking uh, was like being brave enough to say, this is who I am and this is, this is my, my heritage. And as I've gotten older and older, I've come to be more and more willing to just be out there about the fact that, you know, I am a rural, you know, I'm a, I'm a rural uh, Midwesterner and there's something to be learned uh, from that heritage that I don't have to sort of put in the closet anymore. So, so yeah, it's, it's shaped me very dramatically in ways that I now at, you know, at 60, I'm finally willing to say out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Um, I, I know my own approach to, to food and eating out or dining out, um, dining out sounds pretentious to me, but is, is shaped by those, those nights with my parents, my dad, especially. I mean, I, you know, some nights even just the excitement around getting dressed up a bit if we were going to a fancy restaurant downtown oh, Chicago. It was, yeah. it was an event. And, uh, yes. you know, it's amazing how those things still shape you. In fact, I'm, I'm horrified at the thought of what might happen to the the food industry in this country oh. elsewhere, too, but uh, as a result of the pandemic. Fingers crossed. But the thought of... Uh, really cities, Yeah, you know, cities in small towns and, oh, just awful. Mm-hmm. What about in your teaching? And oh, it's also... It's also been a really, you know, just for a minute to talk about the food system, it's been really interesting to see the ways in which there's been a little bit of a boost, and I'm hoping it will will um, strengthen for um, the the transformation of the food system to move it away from, a, you know, a large-scale global industrial system where, you know, spinach grown in California spreads itself across the country and suddenly everyone everywhere is, is getting, um, oh shoot, now I've suddenly forgotten the name of the disease that uh, oh, wow. Uh, from the, the, on uh, spinach a couple of years ago. Yeah, the, uh, what is that called? Oh, the, the, yeah, you know what I mean. Where the, the yes, basically feces. <laughs> that one yeah. disease, exactly. <laughs> and and when, when, a, when a food system has food spreading that quickly, that far, uh, it's really difficult to control any kind of disease outbreak, whereas a food system that's localized uh, and where you, maybe you don't know your farmer personally, but you know you know the farm area from which that food came. Uh, what would it look like for us to really seriously think about relocalizing the food economy? And, you know, a lot of people have been working on that for, for the last 20 or 25 years. And it, it will be very interesting to see how this pandemic um, enables that. Or will we just figure out a new way to do global differently? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It will be interesting. It's important. And I Part of me is skeptical about how much will change yes. on that front and other fronts, but still, there are opportun- yes. there are definitely opportunities. Um, I wanted to ask you about your your how how food works away into your teaching or philosophy of food. But before we do that, since you raised this issue of local uh, production of food. You were involved, right, in the uh, I forget what it's called, the garden on campus, the community garden, the Gustavus uh, Garden. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So, yeah, the St. Peter Community Garden. We also at Gustavus have uh, the Big Hill Farm, which is a student run operation. Uh, Unfortunately, this year it had to had to put away its hose. But uh, 
but the St. Peter Community Garden is is going strong, and I think they're in there about their 15th year. Wow. As I always say, I put the community in community gardening. That is, I'm a terrible gardener, and I actually don't enjoy it at all. Oh. I, I raised squash and potatoes a couple of years, mm. but then started started spending summers in Maine more regularly, and, and I, I gave away my plot. But it's to me, it's a wonderful a community opportunity for people who wouldn't necessarily run into each other to do so and to learn from each other. I remember an early year, uh, a group of very recent um, residents in the community uh, uh, were Somali, and they decided they were going to raise um, a certain kind of melon, and everyone in town was very skeptical about the possibility and also about the method that they were using, and there was much tut-tut-tutting while they raised so many melons that they had to sell them <laughs> to the St. Peter Food Co-op because they were just so successful, and then all of the all of the Euro-Americans had to kind of say, oh, well, you know, maybe there's something we can learn from <laughs> these folks who have come from a subtropical growing season. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Did the big was the Big Hill Farm also uh, supplying the Gustavus Dining Service with some with produce. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, every when we come back to school in the fall, we are always the beneficiaries of tomatoes and zucchini and a few other uh, crops that the that the farm produces in in abundance. Uh, and Steve Chelgren always has a little bit of a struggle to help the, the the growers realize that, no, you really need to be out there watching those zucchini because they will become too big for me to be willing to buy from you. But there's a really wonderful hand-in-glove relationship between the farm and the dining service. We're so lucky at Gustavus to have a dining service that is, um, we are self-feeding, as they say in the biz. Um, that is, it's our dining service is owned by us. It's not owned by a hotel. Yes. Chain, which means that we can make our own decisions and at Gustavus, those decisions are really rooted in ethical and social commitments to, to justice, which I just love. So we have this committee called the uh, Kitchen Cabinet. We meet once a month, and we have conversations about how should we make decisions that will benefit the educational mission of the school and really, uh, you know, our five core values. So to me, that's just a thrill of working at this place is that the dining service is thinking about the core values of the institution and how can it embody them. We're really lucky. Yeah, that's great. And I want to interview Steve for this podcast. Oh, yes. Um, interesting. <clears throat> just an interesting guy. Um, Kate and I, my wife, Kate Winstein, who taught in the history department at Gustavus until she retired, Kate and I are part of a mm -hmm. you know community garden up here in downtown Minneapolis. And um, while we don't have the diversity we wish we had, it is amazing how much you can learn from one another. Um, and then I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to go to the um, – Good Council Gardens in Mankato. Oh, in Mankato. Run, basically run by the nuns there, the Sisters of Notre yes, Dame or something. the like. Sisters of Notre okay, Dame. yeah. And my God, yes. that is just – one of the gardeners there gave, uh, gave me a tour. It is just spectacular. It's a beautiful setting, and the diversity is just absolutely – incredible. I mean, it's not what people yes. think of when they think of uh, Minnesota. All kinds of people from Africa, from, uh, I think, Ukraine, Russia. Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Yeah. It's just, wow. Mm -hmm. It was really, really interesting to see in all the different techniques. So how do you work food into your teaching, aside from maybe occasionally, mm. <laughs> I know, having <laughs> literally breaking bread you've made or you and the students have made? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, and, you know, as a small uh, department in a small liberal arts college, we are all of us generalists. Um, but in recent years, I've started to be a little bit, I guess, more aggressive in the ways in which I'm um, 
using food in my classes. You know, occasionally I would teach, I used to teach a first term seminar called Good Food, and I've taught a January term um, uh, travel pro course called uh, Just food and some things like that. I've taught, I've taught, um, advanced level seminars on eating, but those were always specialized one-off classes. And I've started in, in more recent years to think, how could I use food more frequently as, as an entry point into topics? So mm -hmm. last year or the year before I ta actually taught an aesthetics course where we thought, uh, about where food came to be a focus of the class, and it did so in a really interesting way that also connects to the Nobel conference. I set as the class project um, the the top the project of designing aesthetic dining experiences for the people who were going to Nobel conference, oh. and the Nobel conference theme that following fall was um, was the climate change conference, and so the idea was clearly the food at a climate change conference ought to reflect interests and concerns about climate change, food being one of the huge sources of greenhouse gases, of course. And so then, but what we didn't want to do was create a whole bunch of meals that made people feel like they were doing a virtuous thing, but not a particularly delicious thing. So the students in the class uh, researched uh, the role of food in, in climate change, and then also spent a lot of time researching, you know, the aesthetic sense of taste, the, the the food aesthetic sense of taste. So it was a really fun project for me, partly because it first required students to take food seriously as mm -hmm. a source of aesthetic value. Uh, so this fall, I'm teaching, um, for the first time, I get to teach uh, environmental philosophies. And a lot of times that course is taught as environmental ethics. I'm actually teaching it as environmental philosophy in sort of the full sense of that word. So we're going to look at aesthetics, we're going to look at epistemology, theory of knowledge uh we're gonna we're also gonna look at ethics and food is one of the um ways into the subject matter of the class so we're going to read a book that's really rooted in so to speak in philosophy of agriculture um as a way to think into you know environment sometimes the environment comes to be this thing that they have in you know national parks or something like that right. or, or designated wildernesses but we're going to say you know the Oh, another of the books, Greg, you'll love this, is called Thinking Like a Mall. Oh, <laughs> oh um, yes. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an environmental philosophy book that's about, look, the malls are also our environment. So really inviting people to think the parts of daily, everyday life um, engage us with the environment. And one of the best ways to have students notice that is this thing they do three and usually more than that times a day eat <laughs> that's uh, that's that sounds like a great course and that's not going to be a first-term seminar that's going to be a regular philosophy no that's yeah yeah that, yeah and it's a course that the environmental studies students take as part of their part of their major so i'm really looking forward to have some some serious hardcore folks who have taken their geology and geography and mm -hmm. uh and uh, biochem classes um, in my in, in my class. That's great. I I, I interviewed yeah. Jeff Jeremiahson, who's one of the leaders oh. of the Environmental Studies Program at Casavis, which is quite strong. And yes, I chuckled, of course, yes. when you said about when you made that point about the mall, because years ago you and I talked about doing. Uh, I think we were joking or half joking about a January term at Casavis called the Malling of America, um, and I yes. guess, you know you could spell it however you 
both ways. So we were, <laughs> I think we were going to meet at the Mall of America, right? And we were the Mall of America. Oh my God, talk about intersectionality and interdisciplinarity and food and you name it, leisure. No, um, we should still do that at some point. Where, um, where did you go for the J term on 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 uh, what was it called? Just food? Ah, where, where, where would you go? Just food. Yeah, we spent the month in Boston, uh, oh, wow. and our biggest shock was that um, a group of students from Minnesota did not know how to dress for walking the streets of Boston. They none of them brought an adequate jacket. They also didn't understand that the streets of Boston are much narrower than the streets of a of a of a Minnesota town. And so there were there were there were many cultural learnings. But the students worked in three different, very different um, food and justice organizations. One of them, this giant, giant homeless shelter called the Pine Street Inn. Okay. Uh, one of them worked in a, a Dorothy Day Center. And then one of them worked in a, a, a center that I think I'm losing on, you a little uh, bit, Lisa. Women, homeless women, homeless, homeless women who were also employed full time in in places uh, where they needed to dress professionally, among other things. So, you know, so students you, sorry had to very interesting, different experiences. Could yeah. you could you back up a bit because I, I lost just a bit of that when you were talking about. So the students yeah. uh, tell us again what they were doing in Boston. They were working in groups. Yeah. Yeah, so they worked in groups. They they spent I think three days a week volunteering in one of these different homeless organizations in um, in Chicago, and they were very very different in the kinds of services they offered and the philosophy under which they operated. So one of them, the the Catholic Worker Movement, um, a Dorothy Day Center. Uh, one of them was a. a, a I mean, I think it's run by the city of Boston called the Pine Street Inn. And then another was oh, yeah. a kind of a corporate funded organization that particularly focused on women. And the students had such dramatically different experiences in each of these places. But it led them to to think very deeply about hospitality and about expectation and about justice and who who gets to expect that their sandwich will not have a thumbprint on it. That was one of the riveting moments, uh, uh, conversations we had. a student felt, a, 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 this is just a quick anecdote. One day a student had the experience of, of one of the folks coming back and demanding a different sandwich because theirs had a thumbprint on it. And her first reaction was, it's free. You should be grateful. And then horrified at what she had thought. Like, why should a homeless person have to eat a sandwich that has a giant thumbprint in it any more yeah. than I should? Yeah. So we had a lot of moments like that where suddenly the world jostled on its axis for them and they realized how how privileged and how presumptuous their standpoints were. That sounds like a great course, uh, which I would love to have taken. Boston's a great food city, even more even more so now. That's where I discovered my love of uh, oysters, raw, and in other forms, and also uh, calamari. Um, the other thing you you mentioned Nobel, and I thought maybe this would be a good point to to pivot a little bit toward that the annual Nobel yes. conference at Gustavus, which you've now directed for at least a couple of years, I think. Tell us a little bit about the uh, conference, sort of its history, and and what it's about. Uh, last yes. year was on, as you mentioned already, climate change. It was an incredible conference. And by the way, that that is very interesting about the student project. I didn't know that the food was wonderful last year. Uh, and the, the way I think weren't there, there were maybe inf there was information with the food too. I'm trying to remember at lunch. Anyway, the no, your students did a great job on that project for the Nobel uh, launch last year. Yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now, Lisa? I can. Um, oh, my. yes, I can. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. So talk a little bit about Nobel. There? Go ahead. I'm here. Okay, yes. Good. Go ahead. Okay. Talk a little bit about Nobel. Yeah, okay. and, um, yeah. the, the, 
Great. The library signal just faltered there for a moment, I think. So uh, okay. the Nobel Conference um, brings uh, this amazing audience of uh, high schoolers through 89-year-old folks to campus to explore questions of science and its ethical uh, implications. And since its birth more than 50 years ago, that's what the Nobel Conference has been about, is that intersection between science and ethics. It was born um, when the college uh, launched or uh, christened its uh, old Nobel Hall of Science. We're about to christen the new one. Uh, we had a gathering of Nobel laureates on campus. And the Nobel laureates gave a sort of a symposium. The people at the college had so much fun with all these folks that they said, hey, let's do this every year. They went to the Nobel Foundation. The Nobel Foundation said, sure, you can do that every year, something they would not say now. They, they, um, mm -hmm. they treasure that brand name and they would not, they would not hand out that privilege and honor. So we are very, very grateful that they allow us to continue to do so. So every year we bring, well, except this year, we bring something like 4,000 folks to campus to explore science and its ethical implications. Um, each year there's a theme. We choose those themes. We try to have those themes announced three to five years in advance. Last year, as you mentioned, was climate change. All the past about 20 or 25 years are available in some form or other on the Gustavus webpage. You can go back and watch those talks. You know, there's there's such an archive there of talks, you know, by people like Jonas Salk and uh, Will Steger and, you know, really the the um, oh, the the economist whose name is Joseph Stieglitz. Stieglitz uh, yeah, he's great. Just an amazing, an amazing repository. Uh, <clears throat> So, and it's a great way that we bring together students, faculty, and staff to think together about how should we frame this topic. This fall's topic is uh, uh, cancer in the age of biotechnology. So we're looking at immunotherapy, gene therapies, all these amazing new cancer treatments that are are coming out as a result of the biotech revolution. Uh, and you know, it's it makes me think of that old philosophical canard: Can God make a rock so large that he can't lift it? You know, mm -hmm. the whole problem of like. Our, which of God's powers are constrained. And it feels like that with respect to these drugs, because we are creating drugs that are so perfect for 10 or 12 or 30% of a pop, of a cancer population, but they are so expensive that that 10 or 12 or 30% cannot afford the treatment. So we have perfect treatments that are unattainable. Wow. I just heard today that there's a new treatment for um, epilepsy, no, hemophilia, which will be the most uh, expensive drug ever treated. They think it will be $6 million oh per patient. So this is the situation that we're dealing with. So we're bringing together a group of people, including researchers who came out with uh, the first um, the first of these amazing wonder drugs. Uh, Carl June and Charles Sawyers will be among us. We're also bringing people, including Catherine Schmitz and Suzanne Chambers, folks who are really saying, okay, yes, the drugs are one thing, but what else is going on in cancer treatment? So how do we treat, uh, How what role do physical exercise and diet, for instance, play in cancer prevention and cancer treatment. Mm. And then also, it turns out that when you have cancer, your whole family has cancer. So Suzanne, uh, yeah, Suzanne Chambers will be, will be talking about uh, the ways in which um, uh, treating cancer means treating the, the, the emotional and psychological health of whole families as people face these, these really devastating diagnoses. So that's the sort of the framework of the conference. I'm really excited this year that although we're going to be online, we are going to have just this wild array of things 
that support those six talks. So everything from cooking demonstration, and most of these by our, are by our own faculty and, and students. Cooking demonstrations, yoga for cancer demonstrations, a storytelling workshop, um, people doing uh, uh, spoken word performances of their own work and of sort of classic works about cancer from the history. We have a historian of science who's going to do a three-part series on the history of this concept of cancer, which is wow. really, you know, really thousands of diseases and yet we think of it as this one scary thing uh so it's going to be a kind of a a, a, a multi-leveled multi-layered um conference that we're going to release sort of gradually culminating in october 6th and 7th these two days of live streamed events which will include include our seven major speakers and some discussions that we hope will still be live we're still working out the kinks of all that time zones between Australia and Minnesota mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of all the bumps of that. But that's the, that's the framework. And we're really excited about exploring this, this um, online format. Uh, you know, nobody's choice, but given that it, it's a necessity, it means we are, we're just experimenting with everything we can to find out what works. How can we use this format to include more people yes. in this, in this uh, wonderful wonderful event that we have every year yeah i think i mean the nobel conference is truly amazing uh it's one of the things i learned about you know 30 some years ago when i was applying to gustavus and came to gustavus and i remember might have been my first semester uh, at gustavus sitting in the library and discovering these um i guess i wasn't sitting i was browsing the shelves and then discovering these uh sort of pamphlets they were publications of early uh nobel conference proceedings you know there's stephen jay gould i mean on and on and on yes. just incredible and lynn margulis yes right lynn margulis i mean just you know just an amazing all these brilliant, stimulating, interesting people who debate one another um, come to, to St. Peter and Gustavus each year. And then, as you say, the ethical, the ethicist who's who's part of the conference. Um, the other thing is, that, you know, with, the, with the, I urge people to tune in uh, to, to watch and listen right. because uh, for a lot of us, you know, faculty included, we'll go to some of the live uh, uh, we'll go. We'll go in person to some of the conference, but you know, often we're back in our offices, listening uh, uh, to it being streamed, and it, it's just terrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, really enriching and interesting. So, yeah, and congrats. I've seen the uh, the brochure that's come out; looks really great, and the lineup, as you just said, sounds sounds fantastic. Um, what about your podcast? You're going to start or have started, oh. it sounds like, a Nobel podcast related to Nobel Conference, which I think is a fantastic idea. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, it's called uh, Science Wise, W-H-Y-S. Great title. Questions. Thank you. Uh, I can't claim credit for it. Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics. So it has sort of two prongs. One of them is to explore with with researchers, uh, whether they be social scientists, natural scientists, humanists, artists, uh, how how is it that you have emerged to be asking the questions that you are? Something that I you know that I know you're also really interested in. Um, we are we have an audience, a Nobel Conference audience of many high school students and also high school teachers. I want all of those students to see themselves in the researchers, right? Like you, this could be you. Yes if you chose this path. And then the other thing I really want to explore in this podcast is how do you think from your vantage point about the ways in which science and ethics, taking that word in the broadest sense, ethics, politics, social thought, um, morality, how do you understand the relationship between those two ways of thinking about the world? Uh, there was a long and 
for me, painful history of thinking uh, that there's a division between questions of fact and questions of value. And indeed, the the mid 20th century was really caught in the grips of, um, I would say, caught in the grips of positivism, saying that scientists are concerned with questions about fact, and they will go astray if they concern themselves with questions of value. Well, the study of something like climate change just shows the... I'm sorry, the absurdity of that kind of way of thinking at the very heart of the questions of climate change are questions about what is humans relationship to this planet and what ought it to be. It's not that is questions automatically lead to ought ought answers, but is and ought questions as I think of it, you know, what is the case and what ought to be the case. Those questions have to talk to each other. So I'm a little trepidatious. I'm imagining that I will get pushback from various parties in various ways. That's exciting as a philosopher, of course. But what I want is to explore with those folks, how do you think about those is-ought relationships? So our goal is to have some some seasons that are devoted to upcoming Nobel conference topics, and that in the middle of January, you might find a talk, by, uh, an interview with a philosopher who's um, actually thinking about questions about the meaning of life, mm-hmm. or maybe a polar explorer who is, um, is thinking about... Um, how ought we to think about our relationship to the vast, the rapidly melting Antarctic ice cap? It just sounds so great. And, and, um, is it, it's already, as they say, dropped in the podcast world, the first episode? Oh, no, 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 no. The first episode was interview. The interview happened um, just this week okay. in, in mid-July. And we're going to we're gonna put that one in the can for later. And But I am launching, I'm starting uh, the, the serious interviews of the folks in connection with the Cancer Conference. Uh, those interviews begin this week. Uh, some of the folks that I'd love to interview, I think, are going to be too busy because, frankly, one of the really interesting things that's happening right now is the cancer and COVID research communities have a lot of overlap. So a lot of the people I'd love to interview, frankly, I'm not going to bother them because they have much more important things to be doing right now than to be talking to a philosophy professor. They are they are trying to figure out how cancer drugs can be repurposed for COVID. So um, Hopefully, I'll be able to bother them at some future date when we have made some progress on the right, COVID but, front. But, but for your podcast, we could have had a vaccine against COVID. Yeah, no. <laughs> <I understand. laughs> um, we look forward to that. I think, again, the title is terrific, and I, I know it will Thanks. be really, really interesting and informative to listen to. The um, Talk a little bit about another aspect of your, your thinking and teaching philosophically and that is um that quote i read in the intro where you're you're interested in the nature of justice oppression and resistance human liberation etc um talk a little bit about how philosophy relates to those or or illuminates Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. great question um one of the one of the really um Gratifying and sobering things about this time, uh, these these weeks following the murder of George Floyd, for me has been to realize that that work I've been doing um, has been important for a community of students. I know you you share with me, Greg, that that the gratified feeling of having a student come back and say something that I thought about for the first time in one of your classes is something I'm thinking about again now, ten or fifteen or thirty years later, and I've been teaching. Uh, sporadically, but pretty consistently throughout my career, I've been teaching a class. It was called 
racism and sexism in the early days, we've changed the title to oppression, privilege, and resistance. And what I think philosophers, and, and I've had a number of students come back and say, you know, I came from a small rural community where we were all white people and, and we didn't understand that that was a place from which one could think about white privilege. Uh, I came to your class, I started understanding the nature of racism, and I started coming to understand the nature of my own privilege. And and I've been doing that work consistently ever since. So that's that's a gratifying thing to to realize that maybe, you know, maybe those little three three times a week classes sometimes plant a seed that, that continues to grow. Uh, what philosophers can do that's pretty different, I think, from right, we're not very, we're often not very good on the current events front. We're not necessarily very good on saying this is the cutting edge research, but we're but we're better again coming back to where we began at asking the questions that say, well, how do we actually understand the nature of oppression? And how, if we think about the nature of, you know, racism over against or in conversation with sexism, what do we notice about the nuances and subtleties of the ways in which those systems of oppression operate in people's lives? So in a way, maybe it gives us a way to step back a little bit from the immediacy of a situation to say, wait, let's, let's think about this. One of the things I, you know, I'm, I'm, well, I'm going to say it out loud because then I will make myself have it happen. I've actually been in conversation with a bunch of uh, Gustavus philosophy alums. And, and this project I'm understanding very much as I am a philosophy alum of this department also. That is, I'm not coming to them as their former teacher. Right. I'm coming to them as another Gus, Gusty uh, saying, what is it that we think philosophers could contribute to this moment, you know, given our particular, you know, skill or lack thereof? And a, another alum said, you know, I think what we could do is write very short, dense, pithy, approachable um, explanations of concepts that are being used in the news that that come from philosophy, but that maybe people don't understand the origin of. So a concept like the veil of ignorance mm. or helping people to think into the difference between abolish the police and defund the police. So as I said, we've just started those conversations. And frankly, I've dropped the ball in the last month. But I think, you know, I think saying, let's step back a moment and think about how that word is operating and where does it travel? And was it what is its use? And how does it um, help or hinder a conversation? That's one of the skills, you know, we call it conceptual analysis in philosophy. I think it's one of the one of the things that we can offer to this moment. And then also, you know, fiery rhetoric, maybe. I mean, if I think about some of the philosophers that have influenced me a lot, um, someone like Cornell West, uh, you know, or bell hooks, yes. you know, fiery rhetoric is also what, what what we can offer to this to this moment. That sounds really neat. The uh, the the project, <laughs> if you want to call it a project, that with with the alums and and um, you're reminding me. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. That recently I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is Chris Hayes's "Why Is This Happening?" And he had on uh, the former police chief of Burlington, Vermont, a New Yorker who had worked for the NYPD and then uh, became. Uh, chief of police in Burlington, who went to Dartmouth and his BA was in philosophy. And then he has uh, finished a PhD in philosophy at uh, Graduate Center of City University of New York Graduate Center. Yeah. And his, I mean, his work is about, I guess, maybe political philosophy in the democratic state. But, you know, again, just Everything you're saying and, and what he was saying in the podcast gives the lie to this notion that philosophy just is, as you said earlier, you know, the stereotype of gazing at one's navel far, far mm -hmm. from it. Um, mm -hmm. 
in the time <laughs> remaining, I want to come to dog sledding. Uh, I don't know <laughs> what, what, if anything, that has to do with philosophy. But tell us a little bit about that because I only just learned about that, uh, about you. That's something I didn't know until we were, t- again, chatting before we started recording. So um, I'm a I'm a husky person. I've had a husky or a husky mix in my life now for about uh, 15 years or so, I guess, uh, different dogs. And um, some years ago, my life was sort of at a crisis point. A lot of things were a lot of the wheels were falling off the bus, let's say. And I, in a moment of um, striving and grasping, I went on uh, an outward bound uh, trip to the Boundary Waters in January. And I did it. I'd always sort of been intrigued by dog sledding. And I thought, well, I'll just do this and I'll get it out of my system, right? I'll just I'll just go on this trip. And the trip was profound in every single way. You know, every outward bound trip is supposed to have that, you know, that thing that you do that, you know, presses you to the limits. And I said to the organizers one day, when is that moment? And they said, Lisa, every single moment of every day here, because at every moment you have to concentrate on not dying because <laughs> you could freeze to death very easily. The temperature one night when you, we slept under these kind of, um, I would call them parachutes, actually, they weren't tents. Um, and, and one night the temperature went to 40 below, you know, in the whole, the whole nine yards. And I was hooked. I, I loved it so much. And so every year now I go, um, with the, uh, it's an organization called Wintergreen, um, up in Northern Minnesota. Um, uh, it's, it was founded by Paul Shirky, a good liberal arts college graduate. He was an English major. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we, we go out for a week in January to um, – we sleep under the stars, literally, on frozen lakes. And and we, we, we travel with teams of six dogs. And actually, I ski. I So I'm, I'm usually a person who's out in front breaking trail. I don't need to be on the back of the sled. I, I like being with the dogs, but I also love the physical exercise of – skiing and kind of getting ahead of the pack and being out in this complete silence. So one of the things that I love about it is I do not take any devices to record anything mm-hmm. or to write anything. And for a week, I am, I guess the, the Buddhists would call it the noble silence, right? I'm not reading or writing. I'm really just being with other people. We sit around the campfire at night. We try to stay awake until nine at night. It's usually a struggle. <laughs> uh, but Paul will tell these amazing stories. He knows every story of every polar explorer that ever lived. Um, he has his own amazing stories about the boundary waters, which he knows as if they were his backyard. It is this incredibly intense time. And as I get older, I also, I must admit that I enjoy the fact that, um, 30 somethings will sort of marvel at the fact that here they are being kind of spelled by this, uh, by this this old crone who's skiing and ski, out skiing them, you know. So I will admit that I'm also a little bit vain about my 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 aerobic capacity. <laughs> uh, so it's just a tremendously fun activity. Last year, I took my own dog and had the the scare of a lifetime when he took off in the middle of the night, and mm. we were skiing out in the darkness across a frozen lake trying to recover the damn dog. Oh. Who, of course, came back of his own stupid accord. Um, but, but yeah, so it's an amazing activity. And and I know that it's connected to philosophy. I just haven't figured out how yeah, yet. It's, uh, you, you're taking the words out of my mouth. It sounds like it. I mean, talk about a, a, a chance to think about meaning and value in life. And um, is, there, yeah. is, there, is there an external reality? <laughs> yes, right, right. And why is it so cold yeah, there? Exactly, right. Yeah. Right. Well, right. thank right. you so much. This has been so interesting. It is always a real treat. Um, the Nobel well, conference coming up is going to be terrific and we all look forward to it yes. as is your your podcast 
October 6th and 7th. October and it's 6th. free, okay. and you can just go to the Gustavus webpage and log on, and it will take you there. Yes, and listeners who might be uh, prospective students thinking about coming to Gustavus, uh, think about minoring, majoring in philosophy, or just taking a course or two with Professor Helke and all the other Absolutely. great profs in that department. So, Lisa, thanks so much. Uh, continue to enjoy Maine. Yeah, my pleasure. And we'll talk soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Good luck with your podcast. Thank Bye-bye. You.